recently. I've been reading a book called The Pact. And it's a fascinating story of three young men, um, Sam, Ramick, and George. They were raised in Newark, New Jersey. You may not know it, but Newark, New Jersey is known as the murder capital of the United States. The amount of murders per capita is incredibly high there. It's a tough place. And these boys were raised in the inner city on the streets. Life was hard. They didn't have lots of positive role models. There was a struggle. But George, when he was a young boy, had to go to the dentist. And he went to the dentist and, and the dentist began to show him all the tools and the instruments he was going to be using on him and talking about what he was going to do. And George became incredibly fascinated by it. And when he came to the end, the dentist said, you know, you could be a dentist. And that sounded so exciting to this young boy. But as exciting as it was, he knew in his own mind, I can't be a dentist. I mean, if you're going to be a dentist, you have to graduate high school. Not many of his family would do that. You have to go to college. You've got to go to medical school. No, when he thought about reality, he knew that wasn't going to happen. But it sure was a fun-sounding idea. Well, as he was growing up, he did fairly well. He, he was fairly smart in school. All three boys were, so much so when they got to high school, they wound up putting them in a certain high school there in Newark for kids who might think about going to college. The courses are a little harder, a little tougher, kind of preparing you for college. And in the ninth grade, they did okay. But by the time they got to their sophomore year, well, you know boys are thinking about other things by then. And the grades begin to go down in the 10th grade and the 11th grade. They started to get into some trouble. And then one day, a recruiter from Seton Hall came to their high school. And the recruiter came and said, we have a special program where we're trying to get minorities to come to Seton Hall who want to go into the medical field. And he began talking what it was about and how they could do it. And suddenly, George started thinking, is it possible? I mean, could I really be a dentist? He talked to his two friends, Sam and Rainick, and said, what if all three of us made a pact? What if we made a pact that all three of us were going to be doctors? If we decided we're going to make good grades and we're all going to fill out our college application, we're all going to go do this together, we could all be doctors. It took a little convincing, but finally Sam and Raymond got on the same page and began to catch that vision of what life could be like. And so they all said, we'll do this together. They told some of their friends their dream and people laughed out loud at them. To graduate high school? To go to college? Are you To be a doctor? But it was the pact. And it's interesting, as they begin to make these decisions, to view and dream their life in a different way, their faith actually started to grow as well. So much so that George would say, by the time he's graduating high school, I know that I'm going into an uncertain future, but I am going unafraid because I know I don't go alone. All three got accepted to Seton Hall. All of them went off and graduated. They all went to medical school. This many years later, Sam is an internist. Raymond, he's an emergency room doctor. And George, he's a dentist. And he helps to teach dentistry at Columbia University. 
And these three men have gotten together and they've written their book, The Pact, and another one for kids, and they've created a foundation and they try to be very involved in the community because they like to think in their own lives. We didn't have a vision of what we could be for the longest time. We were born on the wrong side of the tracks. We decided to go to the other side. In our scripture lesson this morning, Jesus is saying to the disciples, let's go to the other side. Now that was something very specific meaning going on here for Jesus. You see, they were on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the places of Israel. And now they were going to sail over to another area on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee that was not really a part of Israel. It's where the Gentiles lived. It's where the pig farmers lived. If you read on past where we stopped in our scripture this morning, you'll read about how they're going to encounter Legion, a man who has so many demons, and how Jesus will cast out the demons. They will rush into a herd of swine off a cliff and into a lake and drown. No, that's the kind of places they would not expect to go. And it certainly was not the kind of things they'd expect to see. Jesus was saying, let's go to the other side. An opportunity for adventure to see and to do things you would never imagine. I want to give you a new vision for your life. This morning, I want to conclude this sermon series, The Voyage, Trusting God on the Open Seas. You know, we decided when we wanted to do this series to look at all these sea-going passages in the Bible. And we've been looking at them each week, and it's been great fun. Because these passages are unusual for the people of Israel. Now, in the four Gospels, you're going to find Jesus in boats talked about 50 times. And we've also looked at Paul in boats. But understand, the people of Israel are not sea-going people. They're desert people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were nomads wandering in the desert. The people of Israel would go into Egypt as captivities in the desert. They would come through the sea, the Red Sea, into the desert. Now when you read history, you don't read Jews for being great seafaring people. They're desert people. The sea, that was a dangerous place. The sea was mysterious. Bad things can happen out in the sea. That's why they told these stories and the people in the early church began to hear them and they understood that the sea was a metaphor for life the church, the boat was a metaphor for the church and storms were a metaphor for all the bad things that happened to us quite often because of our faith. So when people would read the sea stories, they were not just listening to what happened, there was also a deeper spiritual meaning they'd be paying attention to. Now you and I have had fun kind of learning a lot about the sea stories We've been looking at the Sea of Galilee, which we learned is really a freshwater lake. Eight miles wide, 13 miles long. It's the lowest below sea level freshwater lake in the world. We have learned about the boat, the Jesus boat, usually about 25 feet long, about six, seven feet wide, four foot on the sides, open sides as it goes out to there. The last time we saw Jesus, you remember he had the disciples going out from east to west to Galilee, they were rowing against the wind, 
no longer making progress till midnight when he came walking on the water. Today, we have Jesus going from west to east. And it says, they sailed. That's because the wind is coming from behind. And so now you go on a lovely sail. Let me tell you, if you're not a sailor, when you're going with the wind, when the wind is from behind, well, that's a lovely sail. The boat sits nice and level. Instead of heeling and crashing into the way, oh, it's nice and level. And you don't feel the wind in your face. And you kind of move along nice and calm. It's why Jesus could go to the stern, lay on a cushion, and go to sleep. Because he wasn't banging into the waves. No, we're on a nice sailing with the wind. But even when you sail with the wind, you still run into storms. The storms, the winds can kick up. The waves begin to blow. And now you're pushed into the storm even faster. No, when we look at the sea stories, when we look at today, what we're hearing is Jesus always with a teaching on one level and another level. And today I think he is calling his disciples, go to the other side. Go out into the deep where it can get scary. But that's where you will find life. I want us to think about this as we bring this series to a conclusion today. Just three things that I want us um, to remember. First of all, If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you make a commitment to adventure. That you are willing to go do those things you never thought you would do. See the things you never dreamed you would see. Experience things that are outside your comfort zone. You are willing to follow Christ into adventure. Christ did not call his disciples to safety, to security. Over and over we've been hearing he calls us out into the deep water out into the open sea where scary things can happen. But it's in the adventure that you find the meaning of your life. I've been reading a book entitled In Search of Paradise. My friend John Odgers gave it to me. It's out of print now. But it's a story about James Hall and um, Charles Nordic, the two men who would write um, uh, Mutiny on the Bounty and all that trilogy. But it's a fascinating story of how these two men were fighter pilots in World War I, flying those little bi-wing airplanes. And when the war was over, they were incredibly disillusioned with all the senselessness of the killing, all the killing that had gone on. And we started to move in towards the roaring 20s, and it was all the materialism and all the wealth and just have a good time, a reaction to the war. And they were so turned off by modern society and by the senselessness of killing They wanted to go away, be alone, and just kind of find their soul to hear God speak. What is the purpose of life? And so these two men decided to go to Tahiti, the South Seas, so they could be alone, to think, to remember, to write. And so they head down to Tahiti. As I'm reading this, I couldn't help but think, you know, this now is an awful lot like about 60, 70 years before when you had Thoreau saying the same thing about society and deciding to go to Walden Pond. It was Emerson who gave him a little piece of land, and he went out there and built himself a little house, 15 feet by 10 feet. And you remember how Thoreau went and lived there for two years, two months, and two days. And then he would write about it. We all had to read that book back in high school. And you'll remember those famous words. 
I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and to see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when it came time to die, discover that I had not lived. To come to the time to die and discover that I had not lived? No, to go confront what are those things that matter in life? That's what James Hall wanted to do. So they got there. He left Charles there in Tahiti, and he went on a ship to go check out small South Sea islands. And he was on a ship called the Windship, a small boat. But it, what it would do is it take supplies, drop them off to these little, little islands, and pick up copra. Copra is the, the nut of the coconut when it's dried that you then can turn into coconut oil. So they would bring supplies, drop them off at the island, pick up the copra, and then move on. It's, it was the trade that took place in the South Sea Islands. So James Hall was excited about this adventure to go see some of these little bitty islands, and they pulled into Rutiara. Rutiara was less than 10 miles long, very narrow, one small village on the entire island. They pulled into this small lagoon surrounded by these little islets, and they dropped anchor. And the captain, Tino, said, you know, these people aren't always a hard-working people, but hopefully they'll see we're coming in. They'll have the copper ready to bring out on the boat. Well, James Hall and the crew went ashore, and he took with him marbles. Now, these kids there in the South Sea Island had never seen marbles. He poured them out onto the sand. He had all kinds of sacks and sacks of marbles, and he started teaching them how to shoot marbles and how to draw a circle and knock them out of the circle and you play for keeps. He started showing them how to do this, and the kids loved it. And then the adults started coming around, and they liked it too. And James Hall went out to go wander all around the island just to see things until a boy came running, hollering, Come, come, ship, come. He ran back down to the lagoon, and what he saw was the ship had weighed anchor, the sails were up, and it was leaving. Tino would later write to him and say, because all the adults started playing marbles, nobody would bring their copper out to the boat. So he said, you can stay on this island as long as you want and play marbles, James Hall. And he left. This is not the way the adventure was supposed to go. It never does. Suddenly he found himself stranded on this little bitty island with these natives. He had been there only a day or two when he came down and found all the village was gone. And he looked across the lagoon, and there, about four miles away, he could see the people. It was a little bitty islet there. So he got in an outrigger. He rode over there, and when he got there, they were just finishing erecting this bamboo hut. The sides were going up. The roof was going on. They had a little table, little chairs. They were rolling out the mats to sleep on. And he walked up, and they said, Welcome to your new home. My home? Yes, you're going to be here a while. Your home, your new island. He couldn't believe this outpouring of love, kindness, taking care. I mean, they'd built him this beautiful little place. And he could be alone to think. He was so gracious. They all went away, and that night he laid down in, on his mat in this little hut, and he was feeling so good, went to sleep until about midnight. And about midnight, he heard all this noise, and here came all the villagers back with chickens and pigs and fish 
and it was a full moon, and they begin to sing and to dance, and they begin to have the big cookout out on the beach. This was the housewarming party. He had never been treated with such love, such kindness. The weeks would turn into months, and he would go to see them, and they would come out to see him, and God would speak. One day he looked up and he saw the sails of a ship coming in. It was not the wind ship, it was another one, dropping off supplies, picking up copra, and heading to Tahiti. He could get back to where he would meet up with Charles, and they would ultimately write Mutiny on the Bounty. But when he left the island, he was different. He would write and he would make the observation. The goal of life is not just to lie on the beach, alone, content, just to lie here. It's not the goal of life. The goal of life is not rich and fame. The goal of life is to find what you can contribute to society. To look at the people around you and bless life wherever you are. Whether it's the people on a South Sea island or New York. People matter. And you have to find what you can contribute to bless life, to bless society. That makes your life matter. Jesus would be saying to the disciples, Go to the other side. I'm going to have you go do something you'd never dream of doing. To be there to bless people you'd never dream of blessing. Go to the other side. Be willing to go on the adventure out in the deep. For it is there. You're going to find the meaning and the purpose of your life. Secondly, I think the story is told to us because it says sometimes you're going to get to be on a downwind run. And life is good. But you'll still always hit a storm. That's life too. Don't be afraid. You know, you'll find these uh, two stories of Jesus stilling the storms in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three tell both stories. And when they tell the story, they really emphasize, you got a storm and Jesus calms the storm. It's kind of like they're trying to say to you and me in the early church, don't miss this. Just in case you missed it the first time, I'm trying to tell you, you don't have to be afraid of the storm. They're going to blow. But Christ is with you. Don't keep from going out on the adventure because you're afraid of the storm. Go. They will blow. But you don't have to be afraid. I don't know if you heard this past week, Maya Angelou died. She died on this Wednesday. She was 86 years old. What an amazing lady. I mean, you look at her life and all she accomplished. I mean, here she was a poet. She was an author. She was an actress. She could sing. She was a civil rights activist. I mean, she's quite an amazing lady. She lived and did so very much. But you should never miss all the storms in her life. You can look at the end of her life, and it sure seemed to be great. Boy, there were a lot of storms. Being born in Stamps, Arkansas, in poverty, in the 20s, with incredible racial prejudice. Her parents divorcing when she was just a baby. Seven years old, going to live with her mother, and one week after getting there, her boyfriend raped her. Seven years old. 
He threatened to kill her brother if she said anything. She told her brother anyway, and he told some of the adults, and they took the man out in the woods and beat him to death. And now she felt so bad about what happened to her and to him, she didn't say a word for six years. For six years, she went mute. She came back to live with her grandmother in Stamps, Arkansas. She then went out to California. Her life continued to spiral down. She had all kinds of struggles. She wound up becoming a single mother at 17. She did not have an education. But at that point, the faith that her grandmother had tried to share with her began to blossom. And as her faith began to blossom, she also took responsibility for her life. She went back to school. She got her education. She discovered her talents to sing, to be able to act, to write. And she went on to do all these amazing things. She began to work with Malcolm X and the Civil Rights Movement, and he was assassinated. And so then she worked for Martin Luther King Jr., and he was assassinated on April the 4th, which was her birthday, for years. She could not celebrate her birthday. It was just too painful. And yet she would go on and continue to do so many things. And I really think it's because of some of the things her grandmother did for her, helping her to come to faith, but the teaching she gave her. Maya would reflect back and remember being with her grandmother in the store her mother, grandmother owned. And her mother, grandmother, did not like people who complained. And when she saw somebody coming towards the store, she'd say, Maya, you listen to this. Hello, Sister Susan, how are you today? Oh, Sister Henderson, it's hot. It's so hot. You can't do anything. I'm about to choke to death, it's so hot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sister Susan would leave. Brother Thomas would come in. Brother Thomas, how are you today? Oh, it's so hot out there. The earth has gotten so dry, you can hardly pull a plow through it. Those mules, they ain't got no sense. I tell you, I got dirt in my eyes. It's all so hot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Maya said that after they would leave, she remembered very clearly what her grandmother said to her. I want to read you what Maya wrote. Her grandmother said, Maya, there are people who went to sleep all over the world last night, poor and rich, white and black. They will never wake up again. Maya, those who expected to rise and did not, Well, their beds became their cooling boards, and their blankets became their winding sheets. And those dead folks would give anything, anything, all for just five minutes of this weather, or ten minutes of plowing that that person was just grumbling about. So watch yourself complaining, Maya. What you're supposed to do when you don't like something is change it. If you can't change it, then change the way you think about it. Maya... Don't complain. Live today with joy. With all the storms she would go through, later in life, being interviewed as this author and poet, Maya Angelou said, you know what my favorite word is? Joy. It's joy. If you follow Christ into the adventure and you go to the other side, If you're willing to risk and dream and do those things you may be uncomfortable with, you will also hit storms. But you don't have to be afraid. We go. Third, I believe that what Jesus was doing here was creating an experience. 
I think that's the whole purpose here is to create an experience that the disciples would remember after he was gone. I mean, you think about it. He was on this side here with Galilee, and he said, let's go to the other side to sail all the way across the Sea of Galilee, to get caught in a storm, to heal one man, legion. And then they got in the boat and came all the way back. It wasn't like the first leg of a journey or they were going somewhere. No, it's just an experience. And I think he created the experience so that when he was gone, the disciples would have times when they grew tired or maybe they just grew comfortable with the way life was or maybe they were finding themselves afraid. But they would hear Jesus say, go to the other side. And they would know they had to take responsibility to cast off the dock lines and go. You see, it really is easy to complain about life. You don't like your life. There are things that are not good, things you want to complain about. And it sure is easy to blame everybody else for it. My life isn't what I want it to be. It's my mom and dad's fault. It's what they did to me. It's my husband's fault. It's my wife's fault. I should have married better. It's my children's fault. It's my boss's fault. We can blame all kinds of things in life for the way that it is when we don't like it. And what we forget is we have to take responsibility. That Jesus wants to call us into adventure. He wants us to go out into the deep. But you've got to choose to cast off the dock line and go if you're going to go into the adventure and to discover what life is about. When you think about this gunman out in Santa Barbara, we've been hearing about it, 22-year-old man on a shooting rampage, have you noticed that whenever he's talking, he does all these, inter- these uh, little videos, he is always blaming other people for his life. He never once talked about himself and what he had done or caused. Everybody else has caused the problems of his life. It is so easy for us to do that. To see everybody else causing our problems and what we forget is Jesus said, go, go to the other side. I'm sending you on an adventure out into the deep. But you've got to take responsibility to cast off the dock lines and to go. I heard a great story from a guy named Fred Pennington. Fred was a father, had two boys, sixth grade, eighth grade, loved Little League Baseball. Been there. I've loved Little League Baseball. And what he talked about was how these two boys loved playing, and in the end, they wound up going out on a um, game. He always loved to go with them, but sometimes he just got caught at work and he couldn't get there. And so one day he got to the game, it was about second inning. And when he looked out there, here's this kid, Jason Boulder, who was pitching. Now, he had never seen Jason Boulder pitch. This kid was in eighth grade, but he always sat on the bench. Always sat on the bench. And here he was pitching. And actually did pretty well. He watched him for the next couple innings, and Jason did really well. And he was so shocked, he, he was sitting beside a lady, and he leaned over and said, look at this Jason Boulder kid. I mean, this kid always sits at the bench. He's not very good. I mean, I've never seen him pitch. And the lady leaned over and said, I've never seen him pitch either. And I'm his mother. <laughs> oh, well, Sorry, sorry, I, I mean, but you know, I... He really does always sit on the bench. I, I've never seen him pitch like What happened? 
Her name was Mary. And, and Fred said, I could tell. She paused for a moment to think, like, am I really going to tell you? And finally, she said, it's about eight weeks ago. They were just starting to put the team together, having a little spring training kind of thing. And I was at the sink. I'd gotten home from work. I was cooking, and he came rushing in. I said, how are you, Jason? Fine. He ran on up. I could tell he wasn't fine. So I gave him a few minutes, and then I walked upstairs, and when I got outside his room, I could tell he was sobbing. And I went in and said, what's the matter? All he could get out was eighth grade. Eighth grade, not fair, bench. Finally, he stopped crying enough to be able to say, this isn't fair. The coach's son, his name is Robbie, but he's going to play second base. He's sixth grader, and because he's the coach's son, he's going to play second base. His best friend, Mitch, he's sixth grader, but he's going to play shortstop. It's his best friend. And they really like this other kid, Mikey. He's going to play third base. He's also a sixth grader. I'm telling you, it's not fair. And Mary said, you know, that motherly instinct kind of welled up in me and thought, by God, this isn't fair. I'm going to go talk to that coach. This isn't fair. And she just let him keep talking. And as he did, she was thinking about all that he was saying. And finally he stopped and she said, you know, Jason, as I listened to you talk, I started thinking about the names of the boys you were calling. And I got to thinking how when I come home each day and I, I'm standing there in the kitchen in the front of the sink, I'm looking out the window and I realized those are the boys that I'm always seeing over there in the lot playing baseball. They're always playing catch. They're always taking batting practice. They're fielding infielder, grounders. You know, I'm watching them out there playing all the time. And when I come home from work, I usually find you watching TV or playing Nintendo. You know, son, as you go through life, you're going to look around and you're going to see people in work who maybe are getting promotions or good things are happening to them. And it sure is easy to feel jealous and say it's not fair. But maybe those people are really working hard to develop their talents. Now, let me tell you, if baseball's important to you, it's important to me. If it's not important to you, it's not important to me. But if it's important to you, then you need to go out and practice hard to develop your talent. You've got to practice, practice, practice hard to develop your talent. And you've got to show the coach you have talent and your passion and want to play. You've got to prove it to him. I love you. She said, I went downstairs. That was eight weeks ago. And I got to tell you, I hadn't seen a lot of my son in the last eight weeks. It's not because our relationship's gotten bad. We're actually very close. It's just every day when I come home from work, there's a note on the kitchen counter that says, gone to practice, gone to prove it. And she said, looking at my son out there pitching tonight, he proved it. Jesus calls you to go to the other side to be willing to go on a great adventure, to do the things you never dreamed, to see the things you never expected, to find a way that you use yourself to bless society, to bless life. And you can be sure there's going to be storms. You don't have to be afraid. God calls you to go, but you've got to cast off the, the dock lines. 
you got to choose to go into the deep water. Just know, your voyage awaits. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.